Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meat in Three, we find out why the bacon, egg, and cheese, that classic bodega sandwich, is popping up on menus of New York's trendiest restaurants. We did a few iterations of it, and I was trying to fancify it. We tried the sausage, egg, and cheese, and then we tried to put charmoula sauce on it. We used feta cheese, and we're just like taking ingredients of the Mediterranean, if you will, and try to infuse it. But uh, for me, it was like a car wreck. Tune in to hear about the wild journey of the bacon, egg, and cheese from deli to fine dining on Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi and zakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my good guests. My guests today are um, Joshua Fukei, uh, the or co-owner of Sushi no, no Sushi Nozu, and the beverage director of general and general manager Joshua Copeland. The Sushi Nozu is an authentic eight-seat sushi restaurant in Upper East Side, Manhattan. And since it opened in March 2018, the restaurant has been very popular and it's hard to secure precious seats. And Sushi now, uh, no, now Sushi Nozu has a Michelin star as well. And Joshua Hukei and his brother David and the sushi chef and co-owner Nozomu Abe joined me on episode 126 and talked about how they opened a restaurant together and the unique concept of Sushi Nozu. And today we'll discuss the great beverage program at Sushi Nozu, which was built by Joshua Copeland. Josh has ex- an expensive, extensive experience at the reputable Western and Japanese restaurants, and I was impressed how he explained the pairing of wine and sushi almost poetically when I dined at the Sushi Nozu. So today we'll discuss how Josh Copeland gained the skills to bridge beverage and diners, and tips to pair wine and sushi, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan Needs is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have ideas about topics, topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanneeds at heritageradionetwork.org. Now let's start a conversation with Josh and Josh. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So, um, so for listeners uh, who have not listened to episode 126, what is the concept of Sushi Nazi, first of all? Yeah, so first and foremost, Sushi Nazi is a restaurant you can uh, expect to have a really great meal at. Um, it's a traditional Edomai-style sushi restaurant um, that in a lot of ways is very similar to this show. Uh, it's a vehicle to um, explore Japanese culture. And... Um, you know, we've had we've been open almost two years now, and we've had a lot of different types of people tune into our show, mm. and uh, 
and it's been really incredible to see the response. Uh, you know, I could, I, I, I thought when we opened that we would cater to mostly people who were very familiar already with Japanese cuisine, and I turned out to be very wrong. Um, we have people coming in regularly who have never even had sushi before. Wow. Um, we have people who've been who've lived in Japan for a decade, and I think probably the best part uh, of the job has been you know sometimes we'll have a guest who's never been to Japan or never shown interest in Japanese culture who will send us an email a month later asking for recommendations because they're taking a trip to Tokyo. Wow. So yeah, I would say it's really a vehicle to explore Japanese culture first、mm. and foremost. Right, and if you sit at the counter, it's almost like you were in Japan,、yeah. and it's very In special way. Certainly, we that was the、uh, that was what we were that that was our intention.、Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to great lengths to make sure that when you stepped into our restaurant, you wouldn't feel like you're on the Upper East Side anymore.、Um, you know, a word that gets tossed around quite a bit when describing sushi naz is that it's transportive, and I have to say that from the moment you walk in,、um, we we made a conscious decision to remove.、Uh, All the windows from our storefront.、Mm-hmm. We have quite a large storefront, which is rare in New York, about 40 feet. And we made the decision to cover that up. And、uh, a lot of people thought that was really crazy when they saw the construction happening. They said, "This is like, I mean, this is a huge storefront. Why, why is it blocked off?" And again, the idea is we don't want you to feel like you're on 78th between Lex and Third anymore.、Mm, right.、Yeah. So it's a magical. Space. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> right. Yeah, I really agree. So,、um, so please tell us about your background. So first,、um, Josh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, I had a pretty boring background before Sushi Naz.、Um, I I was born and raised in New York. I continued my studies in New York at New York University. I、uh, began my professional career in finance, and in 2014, I took a trip to Japan that changed my life. Uh, I I met sort of serendipitously Chef Naz, who's now my partner and my brother,、uh, <laughs> I, and he was working at the time at a restaurant in in Midtown Manhattan called Sushi Den, and we got along, and he invited me to his restaurant、uh, for lunch, and、um, I I was after the first piece of sushi, which was a, a, an item that is f- still very frequently <laughs> on our menu,、um, a scallop, a hotate. Uh, nigiri, I I I had a bite of this sushi. I I ate this sushi and it it felt、uh, something changed inside me. I mean, I I was overwhelmed. I got goosebumps and、um, I I went back home and tried to find out how quickly I would be able to quit my job and try to convince this guy to open a <laughs> restaurant with me. <laughs> and and that's that's what happened. And it took a long time.、Uh, opening a business in New York, whether it's a restaurant or any other business, is.、Uh, Incredibly difficult, and and there's always another wall that needs to be busted down to get there, but we did it、uh, with my brother David and with Chef Naz, and after about four years, three and a half years, we were ready to open up the doors, and now, like I said, we're approaching our second birthday,、mm. and、uh, things just seem to be getting better and better. We're learning more and more. I, you know, every single person who works at the restaurant is a teacher to me, so I'm learning every day,、uh, you know. The guy sitting next to me, Josh, has been an unbelievable teacher to me, and and、uh, it's just been a wild ride.、Mm, but、yeah. uh, it's a very interesting, unique New York story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, if you had asked me, you know, my brother has a background in food. 
he has a restaurant, an unbelievable restaurant in Florida called Fuchs, that uh, hopefully maybe we'll see in New York soon. And uh, but if you asked me if I thought I would ever be involved in the restaurant business, I I mean, I couldn't have think I couldn't think of something farther away from what I anticipated for myself. Mm. Um, but I think. You know, I couldn't really explain it, what the draw was. I just knew, I just knew that this was my path. Once it became clear to me after I met Nas, I, I felt like I had no choice. Mm. It was sort of just something I had to do. Mm, that's called destiny. <laughs> yeah, destiny. That's wow. right. All right. So, Josh uh, Copeland. So you are the beverage director of Sushinos as well as a general manager. So, um, as I said earlier, I was fascinated. By the way, you explained. The sushi and wine pairings, you explaining, describing, but it's like, like reading a poem. So I never forgot the moment. So I really thought I have to have you on the show. So well, thank you, you for having me. So, uh, so where you from, and uh, how did you get into the beverage career? I heard you started with wine. Well, um, yes. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, um, my family came to the United States from uh, Lebanon just after the war. So. Uh, this was not exactly the easiest road to take. After we came to uh, the United States, my family settled in New Jersey, uh, which some would consider a lateral move, moving from uh, <laughs> Beirut to uh, to lower income housing in central New Jersey, as far as that goes. But um, one of the things that you find in the restaurant world is that this is a safe harbor for anyone that happens to land on its shores. So uh, this was how I started my career in very humble restaurant beginnings. And I began studying beverage since it kind of encapsulated all of my academic fascinations at the time. Um, wine service is just applied history and economics. Uh, that's what I spent my time going to school for. Uh, and that's what I get to interact with every day. Uh, the history of Burgundy is a history of feudalism and land use laws uh, modified by the Napoleonic land codes. The uh, history of the Rhone Valley, <clears throat> excuse me, is a uh, history of uh, papal estates and papal conflict. The Bordeaux is all emergent Anglo-American capitalism and the way that that shaped uh, markets in the 19th century. So uh, that's the first way that I was able to get into wine. It was something that I could actually watch history unfolding. Wow. I wish you were going to write a book. <laughs> I'm so curious. <laughs> I've already. told him that before. He will. Look well, out for it. <laughs> it's like one of the things about champagne. We all know and love champagne, but champagne was a really fragile commodity in its early days. Uh, do you know what was one of the driving factors to having champagne able to be shipped globally? Harder glass. Mm. So glass that was fired over coal rather than glass that was fired over wood. And the reason why that happened is a law that banned the use of hard wood for, using, uh, for production of glass. Mm -hmm. So by, doing that, uh, by banning that, because both the uh, British and the French had to build warships uh, to practice killing each other and various <laughs> European powers, <laughs> it lent to better, more stable glass so you could have better and more durable bottles of champagne and you had less loss in shipping. So without that sort of history inflecting the way the product is made, um, you don't really see how things came to your table. Mm. Every time you open a bottle of champagne, 
you open up the history of European wars of colonization, you open up uh, the history of the monastic orders that eventually led to the traditional method. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, it's fun, it's sparkly, we get to, you know, make the big popping noise if you open it incorrectly, but <laughs> um, it's it, knowing a little bit more about the product lets you delve that farther deep into it. And when it comes for uh, wine service with um, with sushi and uh, with the service of Nihonshu and the service of Shochu and Japanese spirits, it has to be informed by the same background, as well as a very distinct culinary tradition. So when it comes to studying wine, um, I spend two hours a day on theory mm-hmm. in independent research uh, between flashcard and reading things. Uh, and I apply that to the way that I study for uh, for sake service as well. Mm. Right. Wow, you're a good reader. <laughs> it sounds like you really like studying learning and that's reflected in that poetic description of the wine I had with the sushi. Well, I, I, I tell people when they, they, they react to something like I would like that. Um, I get bored very easily and I sleep on Thursdays. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to gain that an experience, where did you work um, before Nozu? So um, my first beverage focused job uh, was while I was going to college uh, in New Jersey at uh, Rutgers University. Uh, I worked for a restaurant called The Frog and the Peach. Uh, It was widely considered to be the best restaurant in the state by a state that doesn't really care about who's the best restaurant in the state. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the owners of the restaurant were just coming into, I believe, the 25th year of operation when I came in for it. Uh, The general manager, James Mullen, was the first person to uh, give me a rather Socratic education in wine. Mm. Um, I, he basically, uh, let me know when I was wrong, how wrong I was and with great detail as to why I was wrong and kind of like needled me in the ribs enough to, uh, drive the study. So, uh, it was really there that I started seeing it as something more than just like something that had liquor in it. Hooray. As, uh, most people in like, you know, 20, 21 years old would see, um, when I moved to New York, I opened a few restaurants, um, you know, doing what you can without having a huge amount of uh, New York experience on your resume. It's a little bit difficult to get your foot in the door. But since then, uh, I've had the the luck and the pleasure to work for some of the best places someone who has aspirations toward working in beverage in New York can. Mm. Uh, uh, I've worked with Del Posto, which if you want a university for Italian wine, that's definitely one for them. And more uh, recently, um, as I w- was moving into a uh, Japanese beverage background, I was able to work with uh, Chef Ichimura and mm-hmm. uh, Chef Yamada at uh, Brushstroke and uh, Ichimura before he made his break from David Boulay and uh, moved to Uchi with Derek Feldman. Mm. Right. So uh, we'll get into the details about that. So, um, yeah, but you also worked at uh, the Musket Room, which is by Matt Lambert, who's from New Zealand, yes, and this different kind of wine world. The, the idea, yeah, when we're working for each one of these places that, that you can see on my resume there is that you see that they don't have very much in common with each other. Mm. Uh, Del Posto, Alto Cucina Classico, you're looking at uh, the most refined expression of Italian food possible. Um, the Musket Room is a Michelin-starred, very high-quality restaurant uh, that focuses on Kiwi culinary. And uh, at the time when I was working there, had a 100% New Zealand wine list that is a modernist culinary expression of kiwi comfort food, which is frequently 
like a hot pocket from a gas station kind of a deal. <laughs> uh, Matt Lambert actually brags about how he got himself a Michelin star emulating the food that he put in a microwave uh, while waiting for his tank to fill. <laughs> um, now, when we get into the Japanese culinary end on these, when we're looking at kaiseki and you're looking at sushi, you're looking at two very different, different, very divergent expressions of uh, very disciplined Japanese dining experiences. And I was able to do both at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was... That was something that was very special. Right. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about the Japanese uh, dining scene. So you, in 2016, you began working at uh, Brushstroke, which was a highly recognized Japanese restaurant by David Boulay in Tribeca. And uh, so why did you decide to work at uh, the Japanese restaurant, which is kind of a big jump for you, right? Well, because I'd never done it before. Oh, Well, that's the entire idea. If you're ever entirely too comfortable with what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. Mm. If you're not at least in a stress position and you're not just on the verge of panic at least once a day, you're not alive. <laughs> really. I mean, like, that's, it just isn't, it, it, coasting is just not in my nature. Mm. It just isn't. And um, that is not to say that it was an instant success when I came. Uh, I approached Japanese dining very similar to the way that I approached European dining. And uh, I have to say that uh, that was one of the biggest mistakes that I could possibly have made. Uh, That was a very, it was a very easy mistake to make, but it was a massive mistake to make. And I think that you'll see anybody that works in uh, Japanese uh, beverage uh, departments in any kind of quality will agree with that, that one of the first things that you have to do um, when you leave a European paradigm is you have to leave Europe behind and you can't try to fit it into that box anymore. Mm. It just doesn't work. Um, one of the things that I, uh, I tell people when it comes to choosing a wine in any capacity is you have to pair structure. Don't pair flavor, don't pair aromas, pair structure. The mm. carpentry of the wine is more important, just the same way that the carpentry of a house is more important than the carpeting. So when it comes to that, um, you have to understand the flavors, the acid balance, the fat structures, everything that you have on the plates in front of you in an intimate fashion and not superimpose these ideas of European dining upon them. When you're looking at an Italian or a French tasting menu, you're looking at a crescendo of salt, fat, and sugar. It starts off lean and then it ends up getting really, really big and really explosive toward the end. So that's why you can do what everyone likes to do the, uh, call like the phone-in progression. Sparkling wine, white wine, little red, big red dessert wine, coffee tomorrow, you're done. And you can just kind of tick those boxes with whatever you'd like to fill into those blanks. You can't do that in Kaiseki. Mm. You just can't. It is grossly inappropriate. <laughs> you certainly can't do that with sushi. And you, every sushi chef's approach to creating a menu is different. When we speak to uh, Abisan about the way that he does this, um, I'm very comfortable with the way that he formulates his menus, uh, starting with uh, with leaner uh, shellfish and uh, and whitefish with more delicate flavor up front, and then moving from a uh, an expression of tuna or um, like weightier flesh fish um, between starting at a leaner end in a zuki marinade and then moving to something fattier. 
having that sort of uh, those movements mm. as if it was a symphony that he was doing and there are certain movements that come down the line they respond very well to the way that I like to go to formulate mm. certain aspects of a meal and the acid the fat the salt uh, everything that he puts together and the sort of structures that you would find actually mirror what you would find in Kaiseki where it's not a crescendo it's a sine wave it's up and it's down, it's mm. up and it's down, and you have to be able to ride that. Mm. So you say structure, it's a structure of the whole meal, not just the beverage. The, the structure of the beverage has to match the structure of the whole meal, right. but you have to understand the structure of the whole mm. meal to be able to structure the beverage correctly. Right. Okay. So uh, so the, what's the difference between sake and wine in terms of, you know, by understanding the structure, that's step one, and step two... What's the difference in terms of like, the nature of sake and wine? Probably, like, you know, there's no tannin in sake, for instance. Well, tarazake uh, mm. has tannin. Okay. So, like, tannin doesn't just come from grape skins. It also can come from barrels, as far okay. as that goes. And when it comes to, like, tarazake, or when it comes to anything that's kyokichikome, you can mm. actually get uh, you can get barrel tannin, too. So uh, that's something to keep in mind when so it comes to that. So, listeners, means uh, sake aging which is not traditionally widely available, but it does happen. At especially. the end of the year, we have some coming <laughs> <laughs> for the new year. That's one of the things that we have. Uh, something, something fun to look toward. Another proprietary label. But, um, but yeah, we're when it comes to um, assembling a menu with these things, it, it's a different toolkit for approaching the same job. Mm. One is a hammer. One is a screwdriver. Mm. And you can't turn a nail, or you can't turn a nail with a screwdriver, and you can't hammer a screw with a hammer it just doesn't work uh so you have to approach these as two tools for discrete purposes doing broadly the same job mm -hmm. so there are certain aspects of the meal that i will never throw daikinjo at mm -hmm. um everyone likes to walk into the restaurant and like they look at the pricing column and say well clearly daikinjo is the best and that's just not true. Mm. It's uh, Daikinjo is different than Jinmaishu. It's different than Hanjizo. It's different than uh, Richard Ginjo. Uh, that's just the way that things are. And of course, the pricing is going to be more. If you're looking at something with a, a product that has a semi boy of uh, like 18, uh, that means that 82% of your base fermentable material, the rice, has been polished away and goes in the bin. So if you're starting from a position of 82% loss against the product that you purchase, clearly it's going to be more expensive. But the fact that it's more expensive doesn't necessarily mean it's better. Right. So you have to use these bright and shining lights as people like to approach a, a wine list in their appropriate capacity. And I have told people, as much as I want to sell that $1,800 bottle, you don't want that here. Mm. What you want is something that's going to make your night better. So take the take this Jinmai instead. Mm. Uh, it's not appropriate to take high acid, like low fermentation temperature, extremely floral, super sharp uh, Daiginjo, and put it against something that's as lush and rich as a piece of Otoro. Right. It's just it it's just like brushing your teeth and having a cup of coffee right after. <laughs> it's a jarring and absurd experience that you need to move away from. Mm -hmm. So when I pair the uh, the wines with the menu, uh, I typically uh, restrain the uh, the wine section of our pairings to the otsumami 
that uh, are the courses that precede the nigiri courses. Mm -hmm. uh, in those cases, it's a little bit more appropriate. And even then, I try to move away from the wines that you see that have super high acid and super high tannin, unless they're very, very well integrated. Mm -hmm. uh, I never start with champagne. I never start with champagne because uh, it's never appropriate in the progression that Abessan puts through. Mm. Uh, I will use champagne against fried food because champagne and fried food together, champagne and fried chicken, if you don't like that, there's something wrong with your soul. <laughs> um, champagne with like richer um, like cream sauce, champagne and casajiro is like, I love that. Like in the winter time, like that's a, after work, if like you've done a really heavy admin day where you're just battling Excel spreadsheets until 3.35 in the morning, and like I always have like some various forms of dashi, and when I in my house generally, and uh, I make kasajiro uh, at like three and four o'clock in the morning when it's really really cold out, mm. and I'll just do that. And if I have champagne next to that, wow. or kasajiro and beer, uh, yeah. either way, the so kasajiro is uh, the sake kasu sake based soup that you're talking about. Yes, right. So uh, that's umami rich, and oh, it yes. makes sense with champagne. Ooh. And uh, also. Not for uh, just for what it's worth. We are in uh, a restaurant that is uh, like a block away from my old apartment, which is an old factory, which was the worst heating and the draftiest windows possible during the winter time. So having to uh, warm yourself up in alternative fashions was one of them. And like champagne and casagero is definitely something <laughs> that has been a factor in my life for the last seven <laughs> years of living here. But uh, but yeah, so when it comes to using, uh, like particularly when it comes to red wines, you'll see that we don't have a huge amount of like California Cabernet. We don't have giant amounts of, uh, of Australian uh, Shiraz and these things that have high sugar and high tannin and are like these big giant shouty reds. We keep to things that are more restrained structurally to be able to make sure that we can guide our experiences that way. But that's kind of how we approach our pairing. Mm -hmm. And when uh, we come to the, uh, the Nihonshu that we use uh, against the progression of nigiri courses uh, at, the, at the restaurant, I try to give people an example of diversity in yeah. category. Hold on. Well, Sorry. Let's just talk more. After the break, oh, we'll take a quick break here. And uh, we get into the beverage list philosophy first. And then I want to really get into you know, your philosophy. Josh. Of course. Yeah. I get uh, I get a little ahead of myself sometimes. <laughs> I apologize. That happens all the time. So, uh, so uh, let's take a quick break here. And then, uh, so, uh, we'll go, get, go into the details of uh, the Sushi Notes Sake Shochu wine list. So, please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal 
bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coin.com. Welcome back.、Uh, you're listening to Japanese Broadcasting Live from Studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, and my guests today are Joshua Fugay, the corner of Sushinozu, and the beverage director and general manager, Joshua Copeland. Sushinozu is an authentic eight seat sushi restaurant in Upper East Side, which opened in 2018 and already has a Michelin star. So, let's go back to、um, the beverage、uh, program. So, the Sushinozu, so I heard, oh, there's a question, Josh. Okay.、Uh, what, was, uh, what kind of、um, concept idea you had for your wine, wine or the beverage list to be? What kind of expectation、yeah. you had? <clears throat> so, when we first opened, I was guilty of the same mistakes that、uh, Joshua was referring to earlier. I was looking at、uh, our beverage program as having to mimic those I'd seen in Western restaurants.、Um, that said, on a much smaller scale, I wanted to give people a couple of options from regions all around the world. Uh, and part of that was Naz and I, before we opened, meeting with as many、uh, distributors and salesmen as we can, and really just picking one or two from each portfolio that we thought would generally work well with the menu. Obviously, there's a few mistakes that were made along the way, the most prominent one being that we thought we needed representation from everywhere. That's not to say that you can't find wine from everywhere that would work on the menu, but that there isn't, not, that there isn't wine from everywhere that does work all the time. Um, so, the idea was to keep it short, sweet, and、uh, not make our guests search too much on a list、uh, to avoid them picking the wrong thing.、Mm. So, I think we had about a dozen wines,、uh, maybe two dozen sakes, a couple whiskeys,、um, and some champagne. And, like, I, like Josh mentioned earlier,、uh, I made the same mistake that he made over at Brushstroke trying to pair a Western style pairing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I would start with a champagne, move on to a white, probably a burgundy,、uh, then a lighter red, a, a heavier red, and then some、uh, dessert wine.、Mm. And it was working,、uh, I would say, in the most minimal sense of the word.、Um, the issue was that the menu kept changing, <laughs> and I couldn't keep up with it.、Mm. I was having a hard time keeping up with it using only what I had on the list.、Uh, we only had, like I said, maybe a total of 50 offerings. so... You know,、uh, we're talking about a cuisine with micro seasonality,、mm-hmm. menus that are changing not just every month, but every week, or sometimes even on the same night. So、um, it wasn't until we hired Josh, and well, even before when, when I interviewed him and when we, we hung out a few times before hiring him, that I realized that if you have this breadth of knowledge and you do have access to this wider range of product, that you can really pick and choose from all around the world、mm-hmm. uh, in an intelligible way. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I heard.、Uh, so, the Josh grew the beverage list from 11 second, 14 wines to 165 sake, 18 shochu, 385 wine, 22 old Japanese teas, and、um, 51 Japanese whiskeys, which、It's、is a lot. It's still going. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, for now. For yeah. now. <laughs>、um, yeah, th- honestly, it was,、uh, it was during my job interview, actually, when I came in there and we looked at the wine list, and I opened it up and I. 
I actually felt the pressure of gravity where I'm like, <laughs> how are you doing this? with all the... uh, And uh, I think it was David actually that asked the question. It's like, so if you were going to put this list together, how many, how many wines would you want to see here? Like 50, 60. And I'm like, add a zero, maybe double that number. Uh, you need, you just need more. And again, this is one of the things that working in a, uh, working with, Chefs like Ichimura and um, and Yamatsan was uh, very instrumental for. When you find out what your menu is going to be at 5:15 and your first table shows up at 5:30, and you're dealing with micro seasonality. I mean, kaiseki that is all that you're dealing with there. So it's like that is a that kind of stress is something that I know very well and I know how to fill those boxes. Um, so we began our acquisitions pretty much from from the word go I even before the word go he actually started buying stuff before signing the contract yeah um, <laughs> well the 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 thing is that I had a very similar experience with the with with Avisan's cooking the same way that you did actually um, before uh, I think it was January 17th or yeah. something like that that I came in for dinner and uh, I actually had several offers pending right now at that point. Uh, some were actually a little bit more attractive uh, financially, to say the least. But <laughs> I sat down on the counter in the third position. And uh, on the second course, I sent an email uh, and I, that I just wrote to everybody. I just blind copied everybody on it and declined every single offer on the second course. Wow. Uh, there was just there was no chance I was going to go anywhere else. I decided that this is as far as I kn- I, I know, unless there is something wild happening in Kansas somewhere. Uh, <laughs> this is as far as I'm concerned one of the most important Japanese restaurants in the Western Hemisphere, and I needed to become part of it. And uh, I while I was there on the counter, I opened a, a spreadsheet on my phone and started drafting what I would put in and what would have to be here. Mm. And I started seeing the way that Avisan assembles his menus and seeing the the technique that he puts through. The uh, the six courses that will precede your sushi uh, portion of your menu, your nigiri portion of your menu at Sushi Naz, are done very, very similar to what you would find for a kaiseki progression. They're not quite as rigid in form. But you'll see very similar care given and very similar meditation on seasonality for it. And again, this is something that I recognized and seeing someone doing that sort of heavy lifting before they were to come in here. Something that is really just more of a means of priming you for the sushi that you're about to have. Someone who gives that kind of care, it became incumbent on me to give that kind of care to the beverage program. Mm. It was not an option. I had to be the right kind of backup dancer for uh, for chef mm. to have that. If he was doing that, it would be a I would be doing a disservice to him and to the diners that came there to not match that intensity. Mm. Uh, and then I found out uh, a week later that we were doing a collaboration with Taranaguchi. <laughs> so uh, luckily, we had uh, all the toolkits to come in for that. And so there's uh, a collaboration dinner there. with other chefs. Yeah, I think like uh, maybe like literally four or five days after he was hired, we had uh, one of our Japan series, which you had joined us for as well. Uh, and um, Joshua took it upon himself to really go above and beyond with the mm. pairing. So and for listeners who's not familiar, so basically, um, just like a external chef from Japan yes. invited and they do dinner. 
And that's right. So like completely. once once or so a month, maybe once every other month, we'll invite a chef from Japan. Um, usually not a sushi chef, but we have done sushi chefs, and we will continue to bring over sushi chefs as well. Uh, we'll bring over the chef, sometimes their whole team, and we'll do like a two or three day uh, special pop-up event, either in the form of a collaboration with Nas, where they will riff off of each other and create a menu together, or sometimes just that uh, we'll execute that chef's, uh, the visiting chef's menu. Uh, and again, the first question you asked is what Sushi Nas is, and I said it was a vehicle for Japanese culture, and that, that's the purpose behind that. I mean, these are ingredients and, and humans who have never left, in some cases humans, have never even left Japan before. So to be able to bring that over to New York mm. has been, I mean, unbelievably rewarding for us, I hope for our customers, and actually the best surprise has been for Nas. Um, mm. You know, when Nas opened Sushi Nas, he went from being a student to being his own student. Right. And he lost the ability to learn from right. from others. Mm. So so basically, I'll say before, yeah. um, so the, you, you come across completely different chef other than Nozu, at the Sushi Nozu. So a couple yeah. of days you're fired, after you're fired, uh, you are hired, <laughs> and then what was the kind of was it sushi too? No, it was uh, it was capo. Uh, oh. So, and and one of the things that was uh, that we we look back and laugh on this one. I had just begun. Uh, I had just figured out how to use the program that we use to make our wine right. lists. So, listeners, uh, capo is a kind of kaiseki, but it's most for flexible yeah. and there's a chef at the counter you ask for it he'll make it exactly so. uh, in this case it's a little bit more structured than that it's more like kapo kaisaki between the two kind mm -hmm. of a deal but um but one of the things that came in i literally had just figured out how to use adobe indesign to assemble my wine list and was waiting on delivery when chef noguchi walks through the, <laughs> through the door uh and we laugh about it now about saying that one of the uh courses that we had to pair was a uh, chawamushi with glacial uh that were marbled throughout with uh sea cucumber uh roe the cured roe and a uh a sauce that was made from the sea cucumber gut and uh all delicious by the way uh across the board but very very unfamiliar flavors for someone coming from a european background and Thankfully, uh, I have deep connections to uh, wine in Slovenia because I still think that that Movia uh, skin fermented uh, Pinot Gris is one of my favorite things. That's one of the best pairings of my yep, entire career. I have to say, in all the pairings <laughs> I've ever experienced, that one stands out as probably the one I thought um, uh, was right. just the most important. Yeah, Movia is a, that's a very uh, natural wine, yes. people, right? Yeah, yes, I met yes. you, one of the winemakers, yeah. and they're so You've met good characters. Yeah. <laughs> Alas is one of my favorite wine lunatics that I've ever been thrown out of a bar with in my entire life. <laughs> mm. uh, that's uh, I, I admire his work, but he is a very much larger than life personality, to say the least. Right. That's, that's clearly remember the name. Oh, I met yes. him years ago, and I oh, yeah. never forget. No one ever forgets meeting Alas. <laughs> right. So that's interesting, though. Like the Slovenian natural wine goes well with sea cucumber gut. And rose is completely. Well, write that down, kids. One of, one of the things you can think of too is like look at uh, look at the land, look at that Slovenia, and look at Japan. These are both places that have uh, very very warm summers, very warm humid summers, and very very cold winters. Uh, you're looking at a place where there are mountains that run right through the spine of the country. There's uh, not a huge amount of arable land. There's no Kansas in Japan. There's no Kansas in Slovenia. Uh, and you take a look at the food cultures that are that are driven by the land there. 
Uh, there's a lot of fermentation that happens there. There's a lot of use of uh, higher acid in, in the food that comes for it. Uh, there's a lot of river fish that come in for the diet that comes in for that as well. There are is a huge amount of use of eel uh, mm. that you don't really see in a lot of European uh, dining paradigm. And when you look at the same kind of structures of acid and the same sort of pickling culture and the same sort of uh, fat and uh, leaner fish proteins that come in for it, you have a lot of conver convergent evidence mm. of like why these two things should work. Um, Again, it's uh, it's not perfect 100% of the time, but it's there's an old adage when it comes to selecting wines in a uh, European paradigm. If it go grows together, it goes together. Uh, in this case, you have convergent and parallel development that is driven by the land. So if you have respect for the land and the, the culinary cultures that come from it, you can usually find things where there are points of mutual intersection, mm. if that makes any sense. So, yeah, <laughs> so back to beginning, uh, the analytical <laughs> analysis for history and the background and geography, and there you go. Exactly. Right. So it's not as um, um, iffy. It's, it, you can make sure that some pairings really work because of based on the facts that you analyze. Yeah, it's not, it's not iffy. It's never iffy. Mm. Uh, the, the entire thing is that there is, there is a, a, a certain math behind this mm. uh there you know sometimes the fit isn't a hundred percent perfect but it is deliberate mm. it's and it will always be deliberate and uh, like josh will tell you i i frequently will come into work like losing like like having visibly lost sleep trying to like work my way around a dish or work my way around something that I know is coming in because of the change of season. Mm. And trying to say, okay, I've seen Chef doing some development on this. I need to get ahead of this. And there's there's work that has to be done, and it's always very much deliberate. Mm. Right. I mean, it really changes the dining experience. So you have nice pairing beverage. It's almost like a special sauce. And if Absolutely. you screw up with it, it's going to go bad. So. Yep. Well, I like the fact that you called it a special sauce. Because, uh, again, when it comes for, we sp I spoke before about how European dining is a crescendo of salt, fat, and, ass, uh, and uh, sugar. And we spoke before about how Japanese dining is a uh, sine wave. Uh, people frequently in the Italian context will say that uh, wine is a grocery, it's not a luxury. It's part of every meal. And as such, the food culture develops around the expectation of that acid or that acid and tan combination. In Japanese dining, particularly in sushi, that expectation's not there. Mm. The food is complete, or it should be, or it aspires to be. It's not made for that. Mm. It's not made to be countered. This if you were to have a piece of like perfectly made sushi over perfect temperature, perfect, perfectly seasoned, perfectly acidulated rice, you don't need to put anything on that. That mm. is a fully self-contained ecosystem. Right. But if you put something next to it that knows it's an accessory. Right. Wine for sushi is an accessory. Wine for steakhouses is a grocery. Mm. And it should be treated, <laughs> treated as such. I am Nas's backup dancer. I am not ever going to take the lead from him. Mm. My beverages are never going to take over for his food. Right. That's how that has to be. Mm, it's interesting. So because Japanese food is based on relationship with mm. nature, right? So everything's given that we just are responsible only to enhance the flavor and not to manipulate it. So by itself, as, as you said, it's complete. 
and then something naturally comes along from nature, maybe wind or something like that. So that's that's kind circle, of triangle, square. Right. That's that's how it has to be. Right. So so that's a very different approach. Yeah. So I think I I thought we discussed uh, the beverage difference of beverage types, but it's completely beyond that. Yeah. So the structure of food and the structure of beverage. Now I'm really getting the idea. So, um, yeah, I want to know, um, maybe you can uh, give us some examples of the unique pairings that you're like, wow, I didn't expect that. Do you have any good examples? See, the idea that the pairings have to be like discreetly unique is something that I find kind of a little bit difficult to come into. Mm. I mean, yes, well, I, I love... Yeah. Not unique, but yeah. unexpected and sure. successful. Well, I mean, like, again, skin-fermented whites from uh, from Slovenia and from Friuli are, uh, work so well because of the land, as we discussed before. Mm. But um, as far as I'm, I'm, I'm concerned, uh, you know, I might dig a little bit deeper, but most of these things are really orthodox if you approach it from this brand of holistic orthodoxy. Mm. So, like, when um, I'd say with the smoked bonito that we have here. So we have a heismot uh, katsuo loin on the menu now. And the way that this is done, the uh, skin is crisped over top of uh, over top of the Conroe grill, over top of Bichatan charcoal, so you get that textual contrast. Uh, the fish itself remains raw. The skin side is the only side that is really treated with any kind of heat. Mm. After that, it's uh, cold smoked under cloche with rice hay. Uh, Chef will carve this table side after doing the big smoke reveal for mm -hmm. the room. And then uh, dress it with a twice fermented soy sauce with um, uh, horseradish done as an oroshi inside of it and spring onion uh, done as an oroshi into it. A bit of toasted nori that goes over top and various accoutrements that are unique to the day. Uh, sometimes it's shiso flour, sometimes uh, it's uh, chive sprout. It, it depends on how he'll do this, but it's one of the signatures of the house. And uh, one of the things that we've been pairing with it recently is either a very heavily skin-fermented ribola jala from a producer called Kabai, uh, which takes um, 30 days worth of skin contact, uh, as well as uh, time in barrique barrel, uh, where you're looking at both oak and the heavier ends of what you would see for treatment of a Bordeaux. Mm. Uh, the skin will give you tannin, the barrel will give you tannin, there's vanilla, there's all these deep flavors, but the grape using a lighter product than what you would find for a, uh, for a Bordelais product uh, is going to give you more of a cidered peach mm. and uh, like overripe Korean pear that comes in for that as well. So you have flavors that are a little bit more uh, in keeping with, uh, with uh, the appropriate uh, uh, flavor profile to come in for it. And the acid is very well integrated to the kind of acid structure that you mm. need for this kind of a, this kind of food, and the the fruit becomes louder because of the smoke that fills the room when the cloche is removed. Mm. So you're actually pairing the aroma and you're pairing the uh, pairing the uh, the food itself as two different courses. Mm. And, and also, I think the skin side and the inside mm. wall that's yes. kind of like more tannins. Which is why we want tannin exactly, right. exactly. Mm. So uh, on the other hand, uh, for the reserve pairing option that we have, uh, we use um, Spanish wine from uh, Salice Viticultores, uh, their uh, uh, Tinta Galicia, which is um, the opposite of what anyone expects from a Spanish red wine if they are spending their time in Rioja or in um, Priorat or in any of these 
big wine kind of producing regions. Uh, when most people that are Rioja drinkers uh, think about Spanish wine, they think about American oak, and which is tastes like Jack Daniels, and uh, the big giant tannins and hugely extracted wines that take decades to mature. And this is one of the structurally softest wines that you could possibly have. It's all about aroma. Uh, you have all of these beautiful high tone floral qualities and this uh, strawberry, raspberry, and like uh, blackberry fruit that are well, well integrated into it. Uh, when I say that I'm going to be pouring a Spanish wine for people, uh, a Spanish red wine, and it's something that's like deeply dark ruby in, when it hits the glass, I can watch about one out of every three people that see this coming <laughs> visibly cringe when they see yeah, that by it's the way, coming. This is for like the fourth out of 20 courses in the middle. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, and when they see that coming, they visibly cringe. And then when they, they smell and taste it after the smoke wafts through the room, we try to time when it hits each glass to where the smoke is going to hit each position on the counter. Wow. You, I, I came in for dinner the other night, yep. and I told you, like, you know, we have to tie, like, we, that that's one of the things that we have to really seriously work yeah. on. Um, and uh, another case, the use of botrytis. Uh, botrytis, in terms of certain expressions in Japanese culinary, is one of the things that I think that most people are a little afraid to work with because they find that the flavors might be too delicate or the acid structures are not. And you just need to sacrifice your idols. If it works with blue cheese that has that kind of like big giant acid, you can do this. Mm. Don't go with sauterne. But um, if anyone's listening and they're not familiar with the Petrida scenario, it's a uh, a fungus that grows on the outside of grapes uh, that uh, serves to affect the uh, relative sugar content uh, over the course of the time of the grape's maturity. Uh, it sucks out water, so with less water, uh, there's more apparent sugar. It doesn't make the grape sweeter, but it removes the things that would get in the way of the sweetness of the grape when it comes for that. Uh, so it makes for an enriched wine that is uh, sometimes a little bit easier uh, easier to have residual sugar lying about the house. I can hear every psalm in the entire universe cringing at that very like broad <laughs> stroke and overview of uh, what that product is, but it is what it is. It also uh, imparts this flavor of honey and ginger mm. that comes into it that has nothing to do with the sugar that comes in for it. So when you're looking at wines, let's say um, Austrian whites from Wachau, uh, particularly the wines of uh, von Sietzberger, which will be drier wines that always have that little tint of botrytis that comes in for the back. And when you're looking at wines from Hungary uh, that will be frequently taken to dead dry with botrytis effect that comes in for it or not dead dry but dry enough where it, there's not a huge perception of sweetness that comes in for it and one of the things that i think that we really need to just grasp a hold of as a culture of american diners we have to stop pretending that we want dry wines and dry sakes and dry cocktails mm. we don't as a rule, the first thing that I hear when I have someone that wants to choose a sake, they say, I want something dry. I want something dry and clean. And it's like, first thing, you're lying to me. And second, <laughs> like, clearly, you just don't know it. And second thing that comes in for it, when you say that you want something, uh, something dry, what you're actually saying is that you want something that's either going to have a sense of balance or something that's going to integrate with the food. And I got you, man. Don't worry. I'm here to help. I really am. The first course that we pair right now with the Otsumami is a Botrytis-affected um, Romorantin. Uh, we're looking at something from Cor Chevrony from Francois Kazan. 
Uh, it is very late harvest. There is huge amounts of residual sugar. Uh, there is a huge amount of botrytis that comes into it, and it does finish with residual sugar. And so far, I have had one guest who has not been floored by that. Mm. Just one. Just trust me. I'm here to help. I promise you that. Mm. And residual sugar, botrytis, well-integrated acid, and appropriate use of tannin. That's really the first things that you want to look at for the wine side of things mm. there. Interesting. And also, you know, Japanese cuisine, actually sugar is added very often to dishes. So it's like it's a part of uh, the sequence of Japanese cuisine too. So it's not... Actually, it's surprising to me, but it makes sense totally to me. Right, so uh, we are running out of time, but I just want to mention your amazing tea program. So what, how many, like, you know, how, say, well, I, I like pairing sushi and green tea, for instance, when I go to Japan, like, you know, like lunchtime to drink tea with the, the sushi, which is just great. So do you pair with uh, sushi and tea as well? Absolutely. Um, just because somebody doesn't drink alcohol doesn't mean they shouldn't have a fine time and they shouldn't have the full experience. So um, one of the things that we have here is I have a really great partner for bringing these things into the country. Uh, his name is Zach Mannion at mm. uh, Kettle. Kettle Tea, also based in Brooklyn. Uh, Kettle.co for the plug, uh, just for what that's worth. Uh, these are without question the finest uh, Japanese teas coming into the United States. I, I've never seen their equal. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan. He came to the show too. Outstanding. And, uh, his place is in my neighborhood, so just I regularly a, go Just off the Lorimer stop, yeah. <laughs> but um, when it comes to the way that we pair teas, is we have to balance, again, acid. Uh, you, have to balance, uh, you have to balance tannin. And one of the things that we do, same, similar to what we do with sake, is you have to also ba- balance temperature and, uh, and palate weight. So we'll frequently start with a tenchop. Uh, tencha is a type of tea that is made broadly from the same type of leaf that's used to make matcha, but presented as a whole leaf tea. We very gently extract for a very long time, more like when you're making a dashi than like when you're just going to be brewing a cup of Earl Grey. Mm-hmm. So it takes eight minutes of maceration where you think about stirring it, but you don't. <laughs> don't touch. Don't touch. Leave your hands off of it. And the liquor that it casts actually has a palate weight that's similar to a kombu dashi. Uh, and the aromatics are really intense and the finish lasts forever. And I like to bring that in up front because it completely reverses people's expectations of tea yeah. if their expectation of green tea is the dragon pearl jasmine they got at the coffee shop on the corner. Um, and then after that, I will not serve a second green tea. Mm. Uh, the next thing that you get is a sobacha and preferably a sobacha on the mizubashi. Mm. So cold brewed sobacha over ice. So you have a different temperature and you have a different texture and you have a different aroma base. You have nothing in common because if I just do three green teas next to each other, eventually you're going to get blind to the middle palate weight Mm. and the things that they have in common. So you need contrast. You need to ride the other half of the sine wave. So after that, we'll typically stay in category with another mizudashi uh, where we'll take a green tea that will be more... Uh, vegetal expressive, something that'll have those uji aromas, they'll have that little hint of celery that comes in for it. Uh, where for a mizudashi, we wash our mizudashis twice. So when we do that, we will uh, we'll get a more floral expression for the first wash, and then you'll get a little bit more tannin, and you'll get a little bit more vegetal note for the second. And then we'll follow with either a hojicha or a, uh, a hot green tea after that. Mm. Where I want to show, be, uh, unless people really want to get tea drunk, you do have to 
worry about the concept of caffeine being uh, being a part of the meal. But you'll, I would, I'm more than happy to to do mm. between three to five teas against yeah. the menu. I'm glad of I different temperature and texture. Question because it's like tea pairing at the sushi place. Nobody Absolutely. else does it, yeah. so awesome. I mean, I, the the most incredible part about the tea program is just how it will completely change your mind about tea mm. right he mentioned that with the galician wine he's had exactly one guest who wasn't floored by that to start off the beverage pairing. i've had no guests that I are mean, not floored by if every you tea take that one in. sip of this tencha everything mm. you thought you knew about tea just gets thrown in the bin we actually have three guests that uh have requested a private reserve where they're willing to buy the next 10 visits wow. up front so that we have it on on hand for them and it will greet them as they sit at the counter. Wow. So that's, uh, I mean, quite honestly, this is something that I can, I lead the horse to water. I, I can take no credit for these products being here. I can take no credit for their production, but uh, hopefully we can, t I can take the credit for the introduction. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing that I would do. Right. So you are a tea ambassador as well. So yeah. <laughs> Wear the hat if it's there. Right. <laughs> All right, so uh, unfortunately, we are running out of time. So where can we find the information about uh, Sushi Nose? So you could find us at www.sushinaz.com. We also have an Instagram at sushinazNYC. Uh, you can stay up to date there. And we're also reachable by phone at 917-338-1792. Mm. So I'm blown away how deep this conversation was. I'm learning a lot, so hopefully I can keep learning from Josh and Josh. <laughs> That's my hope too. <laughs> Life's too long to drink drink poorly mm. or be bored. Mm. We should constantly help each other out of those two horrible conditions. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I learned from you today, you need a surprise every day. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'll keep it in mind. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you us very there. much. Thank you. Right, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or kikokatayama.com. Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer today is Amanda Wong, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Japan Needs is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.